Ourselves Black is a place where we own the narrative and are unapologetic about our goal, to share imagery, information, and stories infused with knowledge that promotes black mental health. This is the Ourselves Black podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Y. Vincent. On today's episode of the Ourselves Black podcast, a candid discussion about the relationship between different subpopulations of the African diaspora. You will not want to miss this one. Dr. Adaranke Ogentoye is an Ivy League educated, double board certified adult and forensic psychiatrist. She received her Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology from Cornell University, her medical doctor degree from Mercer University, her adult psychiatry training at Harvard University, and her forensic psychiatry training at Georgetown University. She is the owner and chief medical officer of Evolve Psychiatric Services, where she provides general and forensic psychiatric care in the New York City metropolitan area. Her academic interests include minority health disparities, trauma-related disorders, and resilience. Hello, and welcome to today's edition of the Ourselves Black podcast. Um, And this is a special show for a number of reasons. Um, And it's going to be more of a conversation than you're used to, uh, rather than an expert interview. And I'm really excited um, about the topic and about um, the discussion. So welcome, Dr. Ronke Ogentoye. Hello, um, Dr. Benson. How are you? I am good. And I am really excited about talking about this topic um, of the relationship between Black Americans and people who are first generation um, from Africa or even Africans, um, because I think it's a really rich topic and really one that brings up a lot of our stuff um, and that we often don't have, even though it's right in front of us. Um, So um, thank you for having me. Um, uh, Sarah and I actually have known each other for um, quite some time. We met during our residency and we've had um, some really rich discussions over the years. And uh, an article came across that I'm sure some of you have seen uh, from the New Yorker. The article came out July 15th and the title of the article is My Great Grandfather, the Nigerian Slave Trader. Um, and the author is Adobe uh, Tricia Wabani. Um, and basically what the article discusses is how this woman had learned about her family history in Nigeria and how her great-grandfather was a slave trader and how that is perceived, how that was perceived in their culture. Um, from my name, you may have guessed that I'm Nigerian, um, and as is this author, um, but my family's um, a Yoruba, we're Yoruba, uh, but there are different uh, tribes in Nigeria, and, or, and I'm a member of a Yoruba tribe, and this person is an Igbo, um, which uh, I guess I just point out that some of, because some of the traditions, even though I'm Nigerian, I, I'm not necessarily familiar with them. But anyway, um, the, the gist of the article is talking about how slave trading was perceived uh, in the Igbo community back then um, and how it persists until today. And um, something that really surprised me was that the 
way that when this author spoke with her parents about this history that she learned, um, it was actually looked at that, that her parents actually talked about her great-grandfather being a slave trader as kind of a position of influence and importance and something to be proud of, where I think us growing up in America and knowing about the slave trade from this side of things always think about slave trading as something that would be frowned upon or things like that. And so in the article, it talked about how slavery was, um, how slavery was instituted and continued in Africa amongst Africans where it would happen between villages and when people were uh, lost battle, they might become slaves for the victorious um, group or the victorious village. And they did talk about the differences of slavery there, that it wasn't as cruel as, as the slavery is, was here in the Americas. Um, but the other thing that I thought was interesting was that once someone was um, enslaved, they were, it put them in kind of a different caste system, such that once you were a slave and the, your descendants, um, the descendants from you were kind of looked down upon because they had come from this enslaved group of people. And so um, to the point where in this article, the author spoke about how she had a relative that wanted to marry someone, and from their last name, you could tell that they came from the descendants of that slave caste, and the family actually would not allow that marriage to go forward. And so I brought this, um, me and Sarah and I were discussing the article, and we were just wanting to further the conversation about how that might, that idea might actually be impact, might impact the relationship between Africans and Black Americans or African Americans here in America. Yeah, and for me, um, and, and like you said, you don't want to take one article and generalize to all of Nigerians, um, but it was things that I certainly wasn't aware of and hadn't thought of in that way because I think being here, even though I have traveled um, to the continent, uh, we can be so shaped uh, by our experiences of slavery and with sort of the white person as the one that we are, for lack of a better word, blaming for it. Um, and I think it's a different way of seeing it to think about, you know, black people's role in it. And uh, frankly, more jarring on a, on a level that's hard to explain um, in some ways, uh, because, you know, part of how Ronka and I ended up as friends and, and talking is, I mean, frankly, there just aren't a lot of black psychiatrists. So to show up to a rotation and see another black person, you know, you're excited about that because even though she has a Nigerian last name and I'm from, you know, Pace, Florida, uh, there is still this expectation of some sort of kinship or commodity that's going to be there. And in our case, that was, that was certainly the case. Um, and so it really was, uh, eye-opening for me to see how the family talked about it and, and thought about it. Um, and 
I had a bit of a preview for Make before I read it, but I definitely did see and wonder about that line between how people who are the descendants of slaves in Africa were viewed and how I may be viewed um, by someone who comes from that tradition. Exactly. And it was a thought that I had. um, So I am um, a first-generation American. Both of my parents immigrated from Nigeria uh, in the 70s and had me and my siblings here in America. And um, my my parents are a little older. My father's in his 70s. My mom is in her 60s. So they grew up. Um, my father, my parents were adults when they came here. They had already uh, gone to college there in Nigeria. So they grew up under that, um, under that, with that experience. They came here as adults. And that was something when I was growing up, my parents, would always, particularly my father, make a point to make sure that I knew that I'm not a black American, that I am um, a Nigerian. And not necessarily in a way to say that black people in America are bad, but for me to know that my culture is different. And in some ways, I think that uh, I have, I found more like when I got to college, um, this is when I first had this experience of being around a lot of other black people who were first generation African, um, from African descendants or Caribbean descendants, um, and seeing people be very proud of their um, cultures of origin and how it sometimes came to play that people who immigrate to America do sometimes look down on African Americans or black or how, whatever you people choose to call themselves, I'm going to say um, African Americans just for simplicity, that they look down on them and say, and and I think a lot of it comes, I always thought that a lot of it came from the way that black Americans or African Americans are portrayed in the media that comes out and and is shown around the world that um, we, we know how black Americans are viewed on TV. We're often, you know, stereotyped as not as educated or not as motivated or lazy or this and that. And, People, people who are immigrants will come and they'll say, oh, people, these immigrants come and they pull themselves up and it's just that black Americans are lazy and that's the reason why they're not excelling and things like that. And I was always like, you know, that's such a artificial uh, sampling because that, that to say that the reason that black Americans are not ahead in America is simply because they're lazy and that all people from Nigeria are hardworking and that's why they're ahead, which would make no sense because that would mean that if I went to Nigeria, then everybody in Nigeria should be doing amazing, which is completely not true. Um, And so you have this, and so I always thought, you know, it was just this kind of like immigrant versus native 
born someone. But I, what this article made me think about is maybe there's even something additionally behind it that people are looking down on the black people in America because they would be descendants of this lower caste of enslaved people. Yeah, and it's a way where the that mindset really does kind of correlate with American mindset more broadly, right? Like it's not overtly stated, but um, there is something about assimilating to American culture by looking down on Black American people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a there's a vibe there that's interesting, and I I'm a teacher at a medical school and I've ended up uh, with a number of Nigerian, you know, residents or medical students and we've had some interesting conversations around these issues and we've worked in these public sector clinics which, you know, give you a snapshot of Black America of, you know, often the people who are uninsured or on Medicaid. So it is that segment of the population that really is having a hard time. And I've basically had residents say things like, well, you know, my family came here with nothing. Like, why can't people just get it together? And so, you know, part of that conversation is around, you know, biases that you may have, even though you have the same skin color, but also um, understanding the mentality that it takes and the sense of self-determination and since that what you decide to do is going to matter and that hard work is going to matter, that it takes to leave home for a completely different country and relocate your family or to come by yourself, um, that that mentality is one that is hard for a lot of black Americans to grasp. And without that, everything else is a lot harder to, to do. Right. Exactly. And even the, the um, the different sense because what I can say for my parents they came here and no I didn't grow up with my extended family around most of my extended family is in um, Nigeria still but it they came here with the express purpose of having their kids and getting them educated here in America and so. I grew up with, that is me and my siblings, we grew up with, this is, the, this is what you're going to do. It wasn't like, oh, maybe you'll go to college, maybe you won't. It was from the time we were small, my parents would say to us, do you want to be a doctor or do you want to be a lawyer? Those were the choices that we were given. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, you laugh, but I'm, I'm telling you, this is exactly what they would come to say to oh, us. Oh, I know. I know. I, I was a camp counselor um, at the University of Florida in this med- this program that was trying to get minority kids and kids from rural communities involved in sciences. And there was this girl who was a real creative, artsy type who hated science, but mm-hmm. was basically being told, you know, by her Nigerian parents, this is, you don't have a choice. Like, you get to choose what kind of doctor you want to be, but you have to be a doctor. Um right. I don't know what path she ended up taking, but I remember being struck by that. And even as a camp counselor, and it wasn't just um, the first generation whose parents were from Nigeria, but just in general, those kids had um, a different mentality and, and in some ways a different sort of weight around taking their academics seriously and, and excelling. 
Um, but there also was this belief that it that it mattered, um, mm-hmm. and that you could uh, work your way up. Um, and I think that that was huge. But I do remember being struck by the difference between, you know, not just the first generation Nigerian Americans and the Black American kids, but like the first generation anybody and the American anybody. Right. Yeah. And it and it it just. It just, when you, and so you have to recognize as a, as a first generation, you have to realize that that is, puts you in a different place and a different level and a different starting footing than your black American counterparts. I mentioned that my parents had already been educated when they came from Nigeria. And in Nigeria, it's not like here in America where um, schooling, like everyone just automatically goes to school. You have to, you can't go to school, even kindergarten, unless you can pay for it, unless your family pays for it. And so for my parents to um, be educated there already put them in a different setting there. And then to, as you mentioned, Sarah, to leave, Nigeria and come all the way to America in the 1970s to live in Georgia, that puts you, you know, that puts you to a different, for a different person with a different kind of determination. And they came here um, and went to college here again and got degrees here. So already that makes you different than probably the average um, black American around you that you're already with to college-educated parents, and that's just not necessarily true for at least most of the people who I grew up around in, you know, lower middle class Atlanta, Georgia in the 1980s. That just wasn't the norm. And so... Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. And just I just think that that also puts me at a different advantage when I'm going to school and having that pressure behind me and having it be that there was no other option but for me to go into higher education and things like that. And I just think that it's, it just is unfortunate when Africans or Africans in America or first generations don't recognize that there is, though there are these differences that you can't necessarily start judging somebody from the same race where they are in the race when you don't, you have to realize they didn't start at the same starting line. Right. And, you know, another thing that's come up and that we see in the literature, right, is that when you look at resilience in black Americans, having a positive cultural identity is one of those things that fosters it. And if you're coming from a country where you see black professionals as a routine matter, um, it's, it's, it's built into you in a different way. And, and as you were saying, your family really wanted you to understand Nigerian culture, even though you were being raised here. Um, and I think there's a protective element to that as well. And in my case, um, my mother managed to instill that in us, even though I grew up in this area that's sort of a rural suburb. So I was typically the only black kid in AP classes and the only black kid on the newspaper staff and the only black kid um, fill in the blank. 
Um, but she would take us to black history classes. We had before the Mayflower at home. She handed me the autobiography of Malcolm X for the first time in third grade. And so if you ask her, she won't tell you that's what she was intentionally doing necessarily, but that's what she did. And that was so protective because um, what we see in the American school system, and I think it's, you know, there's this difference between schooling and education. And if you haven't seen talks by Jeff Duncan, Andrade, um, he's an ED who's out of California. Amazing. I saw him speak at a school-based health conference um, a few months ago, but he really talks about the difference between schooling and education and that in America, the default is schooling where people are just kind of taught to uphold and maintain the status quo versus Mm -hmm. education where they are empowered and are taught to believe that they can go out and change the world. And so, you know, schooling is free, right? But my mom had to educate me at home and had it not been for that, like I don't know how things would have turned out. And she didn't say, um, you know, you have to be a doctor, but she said you have to do your best. And she threatened to throw me through a wall one time when it was clear that I was not doing that. Um, And so she didn't say what I had to do with it, but she wanted all doors to be open to me. And it's interesting. I'm an MD. My sister's a PhD. um, And we're the first people with terminal degrees in our family. And we've been told the first people from our county that are black who have those degrees. Um, But that connection that she gave us, even though it was, you know, fairly tenuous and superficial compared to, you know, what you experienced, Ronke, was so powerful because when I was discriminated against, I didn't take it in the same way because if you buy into this America the Beautiful narrative that is put on kids and indoctrinated, you know, you stand up, you say the Pledge of Allegiance, all of these things, if you don't excel or people are treating you badly, then the natural response as a child is to think that somehow you deserve that treatment because Mm -hmm. America is right. America Mm -hmm. is good. So if Mm -hmm. you're not doing well, then that means there's something wrong with you. Or if somebody's not nice to you, that means that you deserve to be treated that way. And that orientation my mom gave me, gave me this certain armor kind of going through these predominantly white environments where I wasn't treated the same way or where I did face discrimination. Interestingly for me, my first experiences with discrimination were actually from black Americans, and it would be for being made fun of, for being dark-skinned, or having a weird name, or um, my, um, my father has uh, tribal marks on his face. Um, it's, I don't know if you guys, for the listeners, if you aren't familiar, it's the, like, you might have seen African people with the cut with the cuts into their face. So he has these cuts on his cheeks. And so, um, you know, in elementary school, you're in your neighborhood. And so, and people see your parents, whether it's for functions at school or whatever. And so it was more for being made fun of for being um, an African um, before I actually, and those are the first real experiences that I had with someone treating me differently because of who I am before it actually happened that it was about a black white thing. It was a black black thing for me. And And I have heard, I've had this conversation with other people who relate something similarly. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because like as someone who's also very dark skinned, you know, the stuff from white people was typically more subtle or it was from people who were in positions of power, like, you know, teachers or, or that sort of thing who would make little comments. 
or do certain things, but the comments that were more negative about my skin um, were from black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that, that education <laughs> that Dr. Andrade talks about, I think, puts us in a position to try to stratify each other, right? Because mm-hmm. there's this desire to, to be better than somebody because you realize in the grand scheme of things, you're not thought of as being better than, than most. Um, but I remember when I first talked to one of my friends about that, like I was shocked um, because I am just always happy to see black people. <laughs> um, right. And so I couldn't imagine ever responding to somebody that way. But I also knew that, you know, everybody's mom isn't giving them history books to read at home. And even if they are, they may not necessarily read them. Um, and so that my orientation may not, may not be the same. Um, and so we have these challenges and I think it's evident that even though they're there, we certainly do have a lot in common. I, um, teach in, in Liberia for the Carter Center, which is, which is a whole other story in terms of some of the dynamics that introduces, um, but just in being around like the students and the drivers and the staff and the people I work with on the program, there are ways that I feel more at home there than mm-hmm. I do in a lot of places in this country. Yeah. Um, and so there's room for us to do better, um, certainly. And I think a lot of cause for us too. Yeah. And I think, that um, I think that like when I mentioned, I think with you, Sarah, you said you kind of grew up in a place where it was rural, but it was um, you were a minority there in that it was a predominantly white environment, and you might be the only black or one of only few black people there. Um, I was in Atlanta, which when I was growing up, Atlanta was still a very much a chocolate city. And so everybody was black around me. And I think that it made a difference that when, when, and when uh, you go somewhere and there's only two black people, whether that one of them is an African person or a Jamaican person or an American person, whatever, they, wherever they might be from, even if they're you know, black from Iceland, y'all just are the only two black people there, I think that you are more likely to cling to each other and grasp that one, you know, similarity that you have between each other. But if you're in a place where everybody's black around you, you don't necessarily have to hold on to that uh, similarity between you. And I think that, um, I think that in I think that even though we all know that we are, quote, minorities, that there are certain environments where we don't feel minorities. We don't feel as a minority. And so we don't, so it allows us to feel more comfortable to divide ourselves. And I think that um, I have found as I moved up in my education and in my um, profession, that I wound up being more and more isolated from people of color and being happy to see, 
you know, whether it's another black person or a brown person or just, and I'm just happy to see a non-white person sometimes because, you know, it's, it's challenging always being the only one and the only voice to speak up when there's an issue about um, a minority thing and, and it all kind of resting on you and feeling that you have to be that representative of all black people all over the world <laughs> just because you're the only person uh, in this setting and might be the only person of color that these other people interact with on any type of regular basis. Um, and so I think that one of the other things that Sarah and I were talking about um, when we were discussing this article was kind of um, bringing it back to the focus of the blackmentalhealth.net um, and what, you know, the work that Sarah has been working on and the things that, like, I also am interested in doing professionally and about and how we wanted to focus on helping um, the black community address their mental health. And I, one of the first questions I asked Sarah was about, well, what is actually the focus or what is the target of your um, blackmentalhealth.net and the podcast um, that you're doing? And I mean, I can let Sarah talk about her thought on that. So my thought behind uh, what was originally blackmentalhealthnet.com and is now ourselves black was that it really was going to be a forum that focused on black mental health and thinking specifically about the experiences of black Americans who have been, uh, you know, the descendants, the descendants of enslaved people. And the thinking behind that was um, that I did think that there are issues that come with being part of a society that tells you it's great but treats you like you're not and that being communicated to you in so many different ways over so many generations added on to the fact that you were intentionally and very systematically cut off from your roots and from uh, your culture um, in ways that still have ramifications. Um, and thinking about that experience and what that meant in terms of mental health. Um, but I will say that when Ronka and I discussed this, you know, it, I certainly didn't want to in any way sound as if I was um, saying that the experiences of black Americans were so much more traumatic than the experiences of other people, um, because I don't believe that to be the case at all. Um, and I do believe that there are more things we have in common than we often discuss or maybe even appreciate. And I don't think that's by mistake either, frankly, um, and ways that our healing collectively is going to depend to some degree on us helping each other and having these conversations with each other and being transparent um, and vulnerable with each other and seeing each other as part of, um, part of the solution. Um, and so I was really excited about this topic and I anticipate that we will be talking about these sorts of things again, because, you know, when I met Ronke, it was the two of us at this rotation in this hospital in Massachusetts. But I'll say, you know, a lot of times when I go to meetings or that sort of thing, and there's the, you know, African psychiatrist group, there have been times I wanted to just go up and be like, hey, I'm Sarah, who are you? Because <laughs> um, I know all the black people, because not that many black people. Um, but I feel like I can't, I can't do that. There's this wall and there shouldn't be. And it, there are ways that that 
like saddens me that that's there. Um, and so that is the focus of this forum, but I recognize there's no singular black experience. And I also recognize, um, you know, the value of, of bringing in different perspectives. Yeah, and I think, um, and I guess I think that that wall that we have, um, that, you know, I, I definitely admit that it exists, that there are definitely some um, either black, uh, either African um, people or first generations who do think, do continue to perpetuate that thought about being different or above or separate from um, black Americans. And while I think that it is very important for all of us to embrace all of our different traditions and, you know, you should have pride in your family that is, um, like, you should have pride in your culture from growing up in Florida and your roots in, you know, that are, are being established here in America, even though it may have come from, you know, it may have started with slavery, you black people in America have developed obviously their own independent culture here. And I think that it's an, a rich one and it's an important one. Um, but I also think that at the end of the day, we all need to be on each other's team because when it all comes down to it, you know, as you mentioned before, there we have more in common than we, I think, than we have differences. And I think that when one of us in, um, succeeds and improves and breaks in and breaks down a, a barrier, it makes way for another one of us. And so I just always think that there there is a way to appreciate your history and appreciate your differences, but still um, be on each other's team. And um, I think also that a lot of times with, um, mental, with, mental, with mental health and mental illness, one of, the, you know, one of the big things that has been increasing has been with you know, things like depression and suicidality and particularly growing in the black community and black population. And a lot of it, I do think, comes from a place of people feeling alone with their problems and feeling like they're the only one dealing with what they're dealing with and that they are not going to be able to overcome whatever it is that's in front of them. And I think then that it is so important that we don't divide a population that is already like smaller and maybe doesn't have, um, is not as in touch with its economic power as the other population. And I think that when we wind up dividing ourselves, we wind up weakening ourselves in a way that we don't need to. And I always just want us to realize that I guess we need to look out for each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I could not believe that more. Um, Ronke, if people are interested in continuing these sorts of conversations with you or learning more about your work, what's the best way for them to contact you? 
Um, so I have um, a website and I have a Twitter handle that I think people could uh, reach out to me on either platform. My, um, my practice is um, Evolve Psychiatric Services. Um, services is plural with an S at the end. And the website is www.evolvepsychiatricservices.com. And my Twitter handle is uh, at Evolve with Dr. O, um, just a DR, not, um, doctor is not uh, written out. So um, either of those platforms, they could reach out to me. Cool. And we'll be sure to link to uh, Ronke's website on Ourselves Black under the posting of this podcast. And I hope that this is a conversation starter for people. Um, and it has me thinking about things I can do differently. So maybe at the next conference, I will go introduce myself and see what happens. And then I'll probably call Ronke afterwards and tell her about it. Um, but I do hope that this con- conversation um, continues and that it's just the beginning. And we recognize that it is a big, complex topic, and we're not going to solve it or fully explore it in, in 20 minutes. But um, hopefully we, we got some people some people thinking. Thank you so much, um, Sarah, and I look forward to our next conversation.